Hello and welcome to This Way Up. In this series, I talk to a number of leading women in the creative industry, looking specifically at the good, the bad and the ugly of their careers. I believe it's by sharing frank stories that we can collectively support each other and make the journey up a little less hard. In this episode, I had the privilege to interview Cindy Gallup. Cindy, for those who don't know, is a founder of Make Love Not Porn an entirely user-generated crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real-world sex. A startup that rose to fame after Cindy's presentation at the 2009 TED conference. But Cindy wasn't always in the startup world. Before this, she had a very successful career in advertising, rising to chairwoman of the US branch of the famous ad agency BBH. And as usual, with the podcast, I go through her entire career journey and the key themes that we can all learn from. And of course, being Cindy, there is plenty to learn from. Cindy tells it like it is, and I love her for it. It's all about getting straight to the point and not beating around the bush. Uh, and there are good reasons for it. For example, we talk about sex and society's reluctance to talk openly and honestly about it. There's a real danger of porn becoming sex education for young men when it's simply manufactured entertainment. We also talk about the advertising industry as a whole. Cindy is very vocal on social media about trying to really change this industry. For her, the biggest problem that she sees is sexual harassment. And we talk at length about ways in which we can end this. I don't want to reveal too much, so without further ado, let's get straight to it. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Thank, Thank you. you so, so much for doing this because I know you're super busy. And um, this is lovely. We're in uh, sunny Cannes at the Carlton uh, for the Cannes uh, Lions Festival of Creativity. And you've done a lot of talks, which um, we'll go into. But I would love to start, as I usually do with my podcast, from your beginning. So uh, you went to Oxford University at Somerville um, College. What was that like? It was an honour to have the opportunity to go to Oxford. Um, and, and by the way, you know, the reason I um, ended up at Oxford was because um, my my father never went to university. Right. Um, his father died when he was 17 and I think must have affected him. Right greatly and he kind of like dropped out and went I off see. and traveled the world and and so from the moment I popped out of the womb I was told I was going to Oxford you know because <laughs> he wanted me to have the education that he, he yeah. didn't and my mother is Chinese and um, tiger mother par excellence that's right yeah. so my childhood was characterized by a lot of academic pressure um and and, and to be honest that, that was not fun yeah the year I sat Oxbridge I um went into a hallmark card shop in London and I saw a peanuts card and I bought it instantly and sent it to my parents. It was a big card with a picture of Snoopy lying on his kennel and a thought bubble that said, there's no heavier burden than a great potential. <laughs> and that's exactly how I, I felt at the time. Yeah. But, you know, um, I got into Oxford and the day I turned up at Somerville College, I was just um, blown away. Yeah. And it was an absolute privilege to spend three years there. And I had a wonderful time. 
But you went then to kind of a different section of your career because you went into theatre publicist. How did that come about? Mm. So um, I fell in love with theatre at Oxford, right. um, which obviously has a thriving student drama scene. And yeah. so I wrote, actor, directed, stage, managed. I was president of the Somerville Drama Society. Amazing. And I decided all I wanted to do was work in theatre for the rest of my life. But I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or a director. Right. And I used to draw a lot when I was younger. Okay. And so I got pulled into designing theatre posters for friends' shows. Right. And from there I got pulled into promoting their shows. And I really enjoyed doing that. And so I became a theatre marketing and publicity officer for several different theatres in the UK. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And quite a hard sort of place to get into, I imagine. Actually... You know, I, because I liked selling shows, I yeah. thought, I bet it's easier to find jobs doing this than it is to go and be an actress or a director like all my, all my friends also right. in theatre wanted to do. I and, and so I, I never had a problem finding um, those jobs in theatre yeah. at all. It's, it's, it's not a career path a lot of people think of. No, definitely not. But what's quite funny is it quite a nice basis to the world of advertising. How did you fall into that? So um, I, after a few years of doing theatre marketing, got completely fed up with working 24-7 and earning <laughs> chicken feed, which is what theatre is sadly all about. Yeah. And yeah, at the time, I was the marketing officer for the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool. And part of my job promoting the theatre was giving talks to yeah. groups. So I gave a talk to a group of women. And after it, one of them came up to me and she said young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. <laughs> and I thought, that is the universe telling me something. Time to sell out to establishment and go into advertising. And so I did. Yeah, and I completely see that. I mean, that is something that's always struck me about you. You feel very comfortable in this sort of selling space. Did you always have that confidence? No, um, no, not at all. Um, two things. Um, first of all, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. Okay. I've never consciously, intentionally planned anything. And secondly, I feel enormously lucky because... Throughout my life and my career, I have worked with people who have seen the potential in me when I did not see it myself. Yeah, that's and, great. And so, you know, I mean, when that woman said that to me in Liverpool, I did not think of myself as a great salesperson. Really? Um, you know, I think I obviously do have a natural talent for presenting, but, but it was not something that I was conscious of at all. I see. And it was something that was enormously helpful in my advertising career, but I, I didn't realise what an impression I made when presenting for, for quite some time. Yeah. I had no confidence when I went into the world of advertising. Um, and it was extremely difficult to get into. I mean, this, yes. was, this was London in the mid-80s. Advertising was the sexiest profession there was. Right. You know, I tried applying from theatre to a bunch of agencies, all of whom rejected me, because... I had no experience, but of course I couldn't get experience unless I got hired. That's right. And so I basically um, went back to the beginning and applied for the graduate trainee recruitment schemes. Right. And got a place on um, the recruitment, um, the entry level graduate trainee um, recruitment program at Ted Bates, back in the days when Ted Bates still existed, which it yeah. no longer does. Yeah. Um, that was 1985. And can you paint me a picture of what that was like? Oh, I had a whale of a time at Ted Bates. I mean, right. it was not, it, it was a big American agency. It was not the most creative place in London, but the people were fantastic. Yeah. And it gave me a very good grounding mm -hmm. in the business of advertising. And so I had a very happy two years there. Nice. And did you see the things that we're going to talk about in a bit about the world of advertising and diversity, etc.? I'm asked this all the time. Cindy, you know, what was sexism in the advertising industry like? And, and the point I make is a fish does not know what water is. Mm, all around. Great me was sexism and bias and racism and and it was the norm yeah and so your eyes are not open to that until much later where did you go after Bates 
Um, so Sarches bought me. Yeah. Um, offered me a job, but I didn't want to go and work in that particular group at Sarches. So I went to J. Walter Thompson, mm-hmm. and from there to Goldbrini's Trot. And then in 1989, I fetched up at BBH. That's right. It felt to me when I was looking at your career that you rose up the ranks quite quickly. Um, you know, I don't know if I felt that way, but I think um, the interesting thing um, to look back on is um, I joined BBH in November of 1989. Yeah. And... Um, every year, year end, a BBH decided who would be appointed to the board. Mm-hmm. And you know, a year later, um, in 1990, um, was, was kind of the next round. Of, yeah. You know, um, and I was um, appointed to the board the following year um, in 1991. Yeah. And and I was told at the time that actually there'd been a very serious conversation about putting me on the board at the end of my first year at BBH. Mm-hmm. And the only reason they hadn't, and this is literally how it was said to me verbatim, mm-hmm. was that, um, you know, they felt I hadn't been there long enough. Uh, honestly, I cannot say enough wonderful things about BBH, yeah. you know, especially about BB and H, who That's were right. amazing role models and mentors and champions of mine. But, you know, they should have put me on the board one year in. Mm. You know, that, that, that sort of got to do your time thing. So it could have been even quicker. Yeah. Was it then that you started to sort of see, you know, uh, diversity? I mean, in terms of being able to take a very objective, you know, obviously, you know, as as the head of BBH New York, I I wanted to hire more women, you yeah. know, I wanted to hire more whatever, etc. But um, but no, it wasn't until I left the corporate world of advertising that I was able to be a lot more clear-sighted about it. And uh, and you know, I, I, I hasten to add also that um, you know, I've been incredibly lucky mm. um, in, in two respects. A I never encountered sexual harassment um, in the career derailing context so many women did, purely by chance. Um, And secondly, um, I was lucky enough to work for a number of men who who saw my potential and championed me. And that is, again, very rare. And that, that was true... You know, um, at at every agency I worked at, um, I, I reported into men. Um, I had, you know, only two female bosses that, mm-hmm. that I can recall in 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 the whole, in, in the whole of my advertising yeah. career. I mean, who were also wonderful, by the way, and equally mm. championed me. Um, but I was lucky enough um, to be championed by men who very much wanted to see me succeed yeah. because they saw what I could do for the agency. Yeah, and that is very lucky because, as you said, when you sort of came out, you saw the other stories, which I really want to go into. But before we go into that, you went to set up the BBH New York. And that must have been, like, I can imagine the world of London and you also went to Asia, but that must have been even more full on. I don't know. What was it like? Well, um, you know, I founded BBH New York because I asked to. Okay. So um, some years beforehand, and, and this probably would have, this would have been in the early 90s, I, you know, did what thrustingly ambitious young board account directors do. I pinned Nigel Bogle up against the wall and went, where am I going in this agency? And Nigel did the clever management thing of turning the question back on me. He said, Cindy, you tell us what you want to do and we'll make it happen. And he said, don't be bounded by the realms of the possible. If you want a job that doesn't yet exist, tell us what it is. So I thought, can't say fairer than that. So I went off and I thought about it and I came back and I said, my dream job would be running BBH North America and I do it in San Francisco and I said that because Levi's was a big client of ours and they were right. headquartered in San Francisco but I said but to be my total dream job I do it in New York Yeah. and he went okay well interestingly enough we have started thinking about the US um, you know that's some way off but your request is logged 
Then, then actually, the first office we opened outside London was in Asia Pacific, uh, BBH Singapore. Yeah. So I went out there as number two right. and got the experience that then enabled me in 1998 to move to New York and start up BBH New York. Yeah, incredible. And I love that you you thought about what's my dream and then almost it kind of happened. Do you think there's a there's a sort of pattern there? Is that how you think in terms um, of no, goal setting? Uh, um, no, not at all. Everything in my life and career has happened by accident. Right. You know, I would not have thought I want to run BBH North America if Nigel Bogle had not asked me that question. Yeah. What was that like in terms of, did you find it easy or was it the hardest job you've ever had to do? Um, to be frank, I can't tell you because I look back and I have no idea how I did it. <laughs> it was a goddamn nightmare. I mean, it was me in a room with a phone, starting an advertising agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace. And, you know, I remember, um, so we opened BBH New York in September of 1998. And... In November of that year, um, the Ad Council, which is a very big non-profit um, that brokers uh, public service campaigns yeah. between the agencies and clients and, and, right. and, 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 and causes. So every year um, in New York, they have a huge gala dinner where they give a public service award to somebody prominent um, in the industry or on the client side. And it's a big gala at the Waldorf Astoria. And um, so BBH at the time was 49% owned by Leah Burnett. And Leah Burnett had obviously taken a bunch of tables. And, you know, on the day of the gala, as frequently happens in these things, um, people had dropped out. So Burnett basically rang around the poor relations, you know, you know the small agency <laughs> yeah, I had relationships like with. You know, so I got this call saying, you know, are you free tonight? Yeah. You know, there's a spare seat on our table at, at the Ad Council Gala. So, you know, um, I'm a startup agency founder. I went, wow, free food and drink, I'll take that, you know. And so I pitched up at the Waldorf Astoria um, in this gigantic ballroom, um, which was filled with table upon table yeah. of, you know, Y&R, McCann Erickson, J. Walter Thompson, Gray, Leo Burnett, DDB. All these uh, I mean, the, the whole of the um, American ad industry um, in this huge glittering room and I looked around me and I thought if I stop to think about what I'm here to do launch an English agency brand into this market if I thought about that I would just go home get into bed pull the covers over my head and never come out again and so I mustn't think about it <laughs> and but what happened to you sort of said, I'm not going to think about it, but it sounds... I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. And did you just ha hustle hard? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of that entrepreneurial spirit that it seems like that thread throughout. You just thought, I'm going to do it. Um, I just worked very, very hard. Yeah. And um, what was your sort of first sort of clients that you got when you first got... Well, we were very fortunate because my client at Coca-Cola um, was a gentleman called John Wardley. And right. he had gone to Reebok as their chief marketing officer. And he was a big fan of BBH. And when he knew that we were going to be opening in New York, he wanted Reebok to be our founding client. Oh, amazing. And so he and, you know, the Reebok team gave us the classic, um, which is the, the, the you know, non-athletic sports shoe side of the business. Mm. Um, without a pitch and so and so Reebok uh, Reebok Classic was our founding line yeah amazing but all our other clients we had to pitch for and win including the clients we already had in in, in the rest of the world and so you know um, we had to pitch for yeah. and win the Johnny Walker US business right. we had to pitch for and win the US Axe business links you know um, so yeah incredible. everything else had to be, had to be pitched for and won yeah incredible feat and and 
I can imagine he also had to grow the agency quite quickly as well, getting the right staff, etc. Well, it's like any other agency. Um, you you hire you hire to staff the accounts you have. Yeah. You know, you can't grow if you don't win business. No, that's right. And you can't hire people without any business then to work on. And so it's it's a knife edge balancing act mm. of ensuring that you are operating cost effectively yeah. while growing the business. And what tips and advice would you give to people who are still in the world of advertising, set up your own agency? What kind of skills do you think people need to have? To be frank, um, none whatsoever beyond the ones you already have. Um, it is very easy to set up your own, and I use the word agency loosely, because I encourage people, when I say start an agency, I don't mean start an agency like the ones you see around you. I mean, start mm. something that gives you agency. Yeah. But the great thing is that all you need is your brain. Mm -hmm. and the skills you already have you know um, it is extremely low cost to start yeah. an agency you know you don't need premises that's right you can Not work anymore. out of your home and out mm -hmm. of coffee shops and whatever you don't need employees you have a phenomenal network of people who work as contract workers or freelancers yeah. or you have access to amazing resources that provide those mm. when a client and you are able to staff that client in exactly the way you need to yeah. without taking that on as overhead no, that's a great piece of advice because with all the technology, etc., you just have that information at your fingertips. But it's about also having self-confidence in your own skills. Um, you don't even need that, to be frank. All you need is to know that you want to do something nobody else is. Mm -hmm. So my advice to everybody in mm -hmm. our industry um, is... You know, I want you to start your own industry because the one we have currently isn't working for those of us who are marginalised. Yeah. And by that I mean anybody who is not a white male. So um, I encourage everyone, whether they're just coming to the industry or whether they've been working it for years, take a long, hard look around you. Identify exactly what you think is missing yeah. that you could bring to the table, what you think should be in our industry but isn't, what you want to use yourself but nobody's delivering on and start that yeah and when you do that and you scale and grow it in a few years a holding company will buy you for a shit ton of money <laughs> and i think it's absolutely right we have so many agencies that look exactly the same and that's because they're all started by white men that's right it might be a good time to go to 2005 when you decided to leave bbh um, what was the reason behind that in the first place? So that was also um, not intended. Um, I turned 45 in 2005. Yeah. I had my very own personal midlife crisis <laughs> in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. Yeah. Obviously, by the way, in a happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but in the couple of years running up to it, um, I'd always thought of one's 45th birthday as yeah. the moment when you pause, you take stock, you reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, yeah. I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Mm -hmm. You know, as I said before, wonderful agency, love them to death. Yeah. Um, but I thought, wow, you know, I think it's time to do something different. Mm. And then the issue was I hadn't the faintest idea what. Yeah. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went... If I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, OK, guys, here I am, what do you got? And see yeah. what comes. So I took a massive leap into the unknown. Mm -hmm. I resigned as chairman of BBH New York in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to, 
and it was the best bloody thing I ever, I ever did in my life. <laughs> it must have been really, really scary, but as you said, sort of well, so rewarding. Well, well, well it, it was, but, but, you know, what I say to people, I mean, I am now evangelical about working for yourself. Yeah. Too many people think that a job is the safe option. It's not. Absolutely. Because in a job, you are at the total mercy of management changes. That's right. Market downturns, industry yeah. dynamics. I always say to people, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Mm. Those of a large corporate entity who, who yeah. at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. Oh my God, I love that. I completely, completely agree. And the other thing I would add, because I've noticed with this podcast, is that a lot of women... Um, lose their identity to their companies as well. They just think, well, this is, I'm a creative director, I'm a managing director, whatever it is, but linked to that company. And actually, that's why it's so important to start your own thing because you suddenly realize who you are. Mm, absolutely and, right, yeah. And how did Make Love Not Porn come about? Was that... So that was a total accident Yeah, um, as and well. I'd love to hear about the um, so, um So I date younger men yeah. um, who tend to be men in their 20s. Uh, and by the way, um, I should just say that I have never wanted married I've never wanted children. Yeah. Very glad I always knew that as opposed to finding out the hard way by having them. <laughs> um, I don't want to be in a relationship. I love being single. I cannot wait to die alone. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm very open about all of this deliberately because yes. we don't have enough role models in our society for women and for men that demonstrate you can live your life very differently to the way society expects you to and still be quite extraordinarily happy. And I'm one of the happiest people I know. <laughs> so I date young men casually and recreationally. And I began realising 11 or 12 years ago, through dating younger men, that I was encountering an issue that honestly would never have crossed my mind yeah. if I had not encountered it very intimately and personally. I realised I was experiencing what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. I realised I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. Mm -hmm. When those two things converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. Yeah. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioural memes in bed. I went, whoa, <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 11, 12 years ago, no one was talking about this. Nobody was writing about it. And I'm a naturally action-oriented person. And so I went, I want to do something about this. So purely as a little side venture, I put up 10 years ago on No Money a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original iteration was just words um, and posted the myths of porn balanced with reality. The construct was porn world versus real world. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to launch Make Love Not Porn at the TED conference in 2009. Right. I became the only TED speaker to say the words come on my face on the TED stage, <laughs> six <laughs> times succession. Uh, the talk went viral as a result, That's and right. it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. Mm. And I realised I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so, you know, thousands of people wrote to me from every country in the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay. Mm. And I felt a personal responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful and effective. Yeah. And I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is the future of businesses doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped mm. global social need. So um, what I decided to do was, I always emphasise that Make Love Porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. Yeah. 
If we did, amongst many benefits, people would bring a real-world mindset to the viewing of what is simply manufactured entertainment. That's right. And so our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Yeah. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. Yeah. And to do that in two respects, to talk about sex openly in the public domain. By that I mean parents to children, teachers to schools, everyone to everyone. But even more importantly, to talk about sex openly and honestly privately mm-hmm. in your intimate relationships. Yeah. And the reason that's crucial is because we don't talk about sex, it's an area of rampant insecurity for every single one of us. Yeah. We all get vulnerable when we get naked. That's right. Sexual ego is very fragile. People therefore find it bizarre difficult to talk about sex with the people they're actually having it with while they're actually having it. Yeah. Because in that situation, you're terrified that if you say anything at all about what's going on, if you comment on the action anyway at all, you'll potentially hurt the other person's feelings. That's right. Put them off you, derail the encounter, potentially derail the entire relationship. Yeah. But at the same time, you want to please your partner. You want to make them happy. Everybody wants to be good in bed. No one knows exactly what that means. Yes. <laughs> and so you will seize your cues on how to do that from any way you can. If the only cues you've ever seen are in porn, yeah. because your parents didn't talk to you, because your school didn't teach you, because your friends aren't honest, those are the cues you'll take to not yeah. very good effect. So given this mission of talk about it, I decided to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to this one area no other social network or platform will go mm-hmm. in order to socialise sex. Yeah. And to make real-world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and therefore ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So six and a half years ago, my tiny team and I launched the first stage of this vision, which is makelovenotporn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated, crowdsourced video sharing platform that celebrates real-world sex. So anyone from anywhere in the world can submit to us videos of themselves having real-world sex, but we are very clear what we mean by this. Mm -hmm. We are not porn. We are not amateur. We are building a whole new category on the internet that has never previously existed, social sex. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube. Or rather, it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed you to socially, sexually self-identify and self-express, which they don't. Yes. So social sex videos on Make Love Porn are not about performing for the camera. They're just about doing what you already do on every other social platform capture what goes on in the real world spontaneously as it happens yeah. in all its funny <laughs> messy glorious silly beautiful wonderful ridiculous awkward humanness yes we curate to make sure that yeah. our curators watch every single video submitted from beginning to end we do not publish it unless it's real yeah and we have a revenue sharing business model so our members pay to subscribe rent and stream social sex videos Half the income goes to our contributors, or as we call them, our Make Love Not Porn Stars. Because we would like our Make Love Not Porn Stars one day to be as famous as YouTube stars. Mm. For the same reason, authenticity, realness, individuality, and we want them to make just as much money. We want to hit the kind of critical mass where one day your social sex video on Make Love Not Porn gets a million rentals. (laughs) At $5 per rental, we give you half that income. We are the answer of the global economy. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love it. Not only do I love the fact that you're taken, uh, ta- trying to tackle such an important problem, and one of the things that I was thinking about, when people don't talk about sex, they also repress an important part of them. And that's absolutely. really terrible, yeah. and that creates uh, other problems. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. 
Because we don't talk about sex, we've defaulted it to an act, to a thing we do. It's not. That's right. Sex is personality. Yeah. Who we are sexually is a fundamental drive of how we feel about ourselves, other people, our relationships, our lives, our happiness. And so here's... Um, so, so let me drill a bit more into what I mean by social sex, because we are doing something utterly unique. So first of all, um, I mean, porn is purely and simply masturbation material. That's yeah. its purpose. Yeah. We are not just that. We are that too, by the way, very happy to be that. <laughs> but we are many more things on top of that. So social sex is enormously reassuring, mm -hmm. because we celebrate real-world everything. That's right. Real-world bodies, real-world hair, real-world penis size, <laughs> real-world breast size. You can talk body positivity all you like. You can preach self-love. Nothing makes people feel great about their own body. Like watching people who are no one's idea of aspirational body types getting turned on by each other, yeah. desiring each other, having a bloody amazing time in bed. Mm -hmm. Our mantra is everybody is beautiful when they're having real-world sex, and they really are. Yeah, that's true. Then social sex is also reassuring because we celebrate the accidents, the mm. awkwardness, the messiness. If yeah. you only ever learn about sex from porn, that teaches you that sex is a performance. Yes. Nothing must go wrong. Oh my God, it did. How embarrassing. I don't speak about this anyway ever. Whereas yeah. we go, if you can't laugh at yourselves in bed, when can you? Yeah, no. In our videos, ridiculous things happen because this is the real world. Then we celebrate real world emotion. Yeah. Love, intimacy, feelings. So our members write to us, and I make a lot of porn stars. One man wrote, he said, the sex that video was incidental. I want what you guys have. I saw the way you looked at each other. I saw the way your eyes met. I hope one day I can meet someone I'll have. We, we get amazing, amazing emails. So the overarching goal of all of this is I decided to make Love Not Porn around my own philosophies, one of which is that everything in life starts with you and your values. Mm -hmm. So I regularly ask people this question. What are your sexual values? And no one can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like no, that. No, that's right. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, a yeah. work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. Yeah. Absolutely. But they should, because they're values like empathy, sensitivity, generosity, absolutely. kindness, honesty, respect yeah. are as important as they are in every other area of our lives where we are actively taught to exercise those values. Yeah. And in that sense, what McLaughlin what was doing could not be more topical. Oh, completely. Because in the era of Me Too, a huge dialogue has surfaced, quite rightly, about consent. Yeah. Everybody is talking about consent. Everybody's writing about consent. There are lots of thoughtful, nuanced, insightful think pieces out there about consent. Here's the problem. Nobody knows what consent actually looks like in bed. Mm. The only way you educate people as to what is great consensual communicative sex, yeah. good sexual values and good sexual behaviour is by watching people actually having that kind of sex. And Make Love Not Porn is the only place on the internet where you can do that. No, absolutely. Every one of our videos is an object lesson in consent, communication, good sexual values and behaviour. We are literally education through demonstration. <laughs> and so we call ourselves the social sex revolution. Yeah. The revolution part is not the sex, it's the social. Yeah, it's the feelings, as you said, that sort of comes out of it. And I love when you were saying about empathy and, and all these important uh, emotions, because uh, a word that came to mind is that when you don't do that, shame is also a big one. 
you know, a lot of people feel shame about sex or yeah. shame about their own yeah. feelings towards it. Yeah, and that's why we are socialising and normalising all yeah. of this, take the shame and embarrassment out of it. And I think what's great is, as you say, in the kind of Me Too era, it becomes so important, but you've been doing it for quite a lot of years and you're really sort of pinpointed. And you, are you sort of relieved that it's finally going a little bit more in that way or do you think there's still a lot no, of work? Um, no, because the one thing I did not realise when I embarked on this venture was that I would fight an enormous battle every single day to build it. Essentially because every single piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup would just take for granted, yeah. we can't because the small print always says no adult content. And this is all faced across every area of the business. I yeah. can't get funded, I can't get banked, I can't put payments in place, every tech service I want to use, etc, etc. So uh, the very fact that make porn is still alive is because you know, I've put all my own savings into it. I've fought this battle every single yeah. day. It's a goddamn nightmare. And I have seen it because I always see your social posts and you are fervent and you always push for it. But not only that, um, because it's it's you need to make money out of it and it is exactly. the company. Exactly. And yeah. I remember when you sort of were looking for people to invest, that was also a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit yeah. about um, that yeah, journey? Our, our biggest obstacle raising funding yeah. is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think mm. because it is never about what the person I'm talking to thinks when you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it to make love not porn nobody can argue with it that's right the business case is clear it is always their fear of what they think other people think which operates around sex unlike any other area yeah that's right because it goes with the world of porn people think if it features naked people having sex on video must be porn Porn is performative produced entertainment. Yeah. We are pioneering a whole new category on the internet, social sex. And this, um, this issue of failing to find investors is something that I and my fellow sex tech founders all encounter. Yeah. No matter what the business, if it's related to sex, nobody will fund it. I see, completely. So you mean sort of um, sex um, toys, etc. That's yep. the same sort of Absolutely. issues that they sort exactly. of go into. And so how did you overcome it? Because I know you did get uh, funding. Um, unfortunately, in 10 years of working at Make Love and Porn, I've only ever found one investor. Right. And wow. so all the funding I have has come from one person who, you know, back in 2009, I pitched the idea of Make Love Not Porn TV for two years before I found one investor who put up the seed funding to build a platform. Right. And he's provided, you know, the rest of the funding we've had since. And that is very depressing because yeah. I wanted to bring him other investors to justify his faith in us. And yeah. I've only ever been able to find one person willing to fund me. That is absolutely crazy. And like you said, it is so important. If I had the money, I'd invest. Thank you, darling. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so it's been an uphill struggle, but it feels to me uh, like sort of last year and this year. Is it getting a little bit easier for you? Or no, it's, it's not. not. It's not. No, no. First of all, you know, in 10 years, all of the business infrastructure problems are still there. Yeah. Um, and now I have a whole different frustration, which is that I now have the funds to do something we've never been able to do before paid for advertising and promotion nobody will carry our ads right of course of course and so that is not only business inhibiting that is business endangering mm. i cannot scale and grow make love not porn if i cannot promote it no. and bring more people into it and and that's why i've been very vocal about that within our industry yeah and here at can because i'm asking the people who own the advertising channels to open up their minds and allow us to run advertising. Yeah, and I think if they did that, and if they took that chance, they'd find that actually they have a really great audience yeah, for, for their brands. Mm. Um, so I would love to sort of 
pivot slightly into the world of advertising because I know you're very vocal about diversity and how some advertising agencies, I mean, you shame them, which is great, when they're just misbehaving. When did that come about? All I'm doing is I'm living my values. Yes, okay. Um, You know, so... What I encourage everybody to do, um, and this is whether you're an individual or a company, is to look into yourself and identify what do I stand for? Mm -hmm. What do I believe in? What do I value? What am I all about? And then live your life and work your work according to those values. Because that is the secret of happiness, when you know that you are living your life and doing your work in a way that is true to you. Mm. And so all I'm doing is living my values. No, out loud. Out, out loud. And I think because you've done that, you've done a lot of service for a lot of people within the advertising in- industry. I can definitely say that. Well, well, to, well you know, to, um, I want to highlight one thing in relation to that. Yeah. Because the white men in our industry are being paid millions mm-hmm. to keep women out of leadership. Nobody is paying me anything yeah. to get them into it. Our industry is not putting its money where its mouth is. No, that's right. I like... All the women I know have been doing a huge amount of emotional labor for free, and that is a huge problem, Mm. because I'm a bootstrapping entrepreneur who has to support herself alongside her startup and pay the bills through paid consultancy and speaking work. And our industry does not want to pay me to do anything. No, because you're highlighting some big problems they probably don't want to talk about. Oh, I'm sure it's because um, bringing me in to effect change would be an enormously uncomfortable process. Yes, and yet it absolutely needs it. And that's why I'm so thankful that you are doing it. And I know you are doing it for free, but it just needs it so badly. And what I love about you is that you take on sort of different problems and you just go head on, you know, as you were saying about your values, and you have no qualms about upsetting anyone. You just try and sort of find a solution. Well, um, you know, I'm I'm in a very again fortunate position. You know, I I am not running a business that is owned by a holding company. Yeah, I'm not running a business that I hope one day to sell to a holding company. I don't work for a holding company. No, I can say whatever the fuck I want, <laughs> and and that is not true of a lot do. of people in a business, unfortunately. No, um, but you could have been more reserved. Like, there's a lot of people who who think and just might tell a colleague or a friend, but you, you are using your platforms to really sort of tell it as it is. What do you think is the biggest problem that we encounter in the world of advertising? The single biggest business problem in our industry is sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I changed my own thinking on this. I used to think it was diversity. It's not. It's sexual harassment. Okay. And that is because sexual harassment manages women out of the industry. Mm. Sexual harassment derails women's careers, destroys women's ambitions, crushes women's dreams. And therefore, sexual harassment keeps out of leadership, power, and influence the female leaders who would make equality, diversity, inclusion happen. That's why sexual harassment is the single biggest business issue facing our industry today. Yeah, and I remember very vividly when you put, I think it was on LinkedIn, but that you wanted to hear the stories. I wanted people to speak up and name names publicly. Yeah. And what happened in that sense? Did you get... I spectacularly failed. Right. I got an absolute avalanche of responses, but I've not been able to help anybody break those stories because the women who wrote to me, and this is entirely understandable, are scared shitless. Yeah. 
And they're too scared to name names because the powerful men doing the harassing are the gatekeepers of everything. Yeah. They're the gatekeepers of jobs, promotions, pay raises, awards, careers, ability to attend can. Yeah. And so we have not exposed the Harvey Weinsteins of our industry and I've spectacularly failed. Yeah. And do you think that what's it going to take to do that, do you think? It takes brave women yeah. and men speaking up and naming names. Yeah. And do you think there would be a way to sort of do it anonymously? Um, nope. When anonymous stories of sexual harassment are published in the media, women empathise and men don't give a shit. Right. That was why, 18 months ago, I put my call out. The yeah. only thing that will make a difference in this industry is, is, is the that, naming of names. Um, I think it's a really important subject, and unfortunately I've heard many stories, but as you said, people just don't want to come forth. So do you if nobody speaks up, nothing changes. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And do you think the kind of the world of advertising is doomed unless it, it does that? Yes. All of this changes when you and I and everyone else make it change. Yeah. And I don't wait for things to change, I make them change. And I encourage everyone else to do that as well. That's why I'm telling women, people of colour, LGBTQ, the disabled, older people, start your own industry. Yeah. And I literally mean like that. Don't just start your own agency, start your own industry. Mm, start the industry you want to work difference. in. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this podcast and I don't want to end it, but I would love to ask you any sort of parting advice, anything that people can do to help you. What I would like to do um, is just to say to everyone listening to this, if you appreciate what I'm doing, please go to makelovenotporn.com and take out a subscription. Mm. Support my startup. I really, really need help. And quite frankly... Not enough people in this industry are supporting me and Make Love Not Porn. And so just taking out even like a $10 a month monthly subscription will enormously help us. Well, definitely count me in. And Excellent. On that note, thank you so much, Cindy. That was absolutely unbelievable interview. But also, I really want to say from the bottom of my heart how thankful I am for all the hard work you're trying to do in the world of advertising and the world of Make Love Not Porn. It's absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Way Up. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please look out for more empowering interviews in the weeks to come. Now, I have a couple of special favors to ask. Firstly, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. It really helps generate exposure for the podcast and allows a wider audience to get access to these really important topics. Secondly, if you know of anyone else that would enjoy this show and benefits from the topics I cover, then do please share the podcast. Um, by sharing this with just a couple of people, it will just help spread the good message and hopefully support the women this podcast was designed to reach. Finally, if you can follow This Way Up podcast, or one word on Instagram, you'll get notified of future episodes. And the idea is that together we can build a powerful community and hopefully start to change the creative industry. That's it from me. Until next time.